Hi everybody, welcome to the special focus 100 pounder meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Rita Kiwi. Today is Wednesday, the 8th of September, 2021. And today I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Nancy J. Nancy is from Geneva in Illinois. She first came to OA in 1977 and then came back in 2015. I am going to hand it over now to her to um, share her experience, strength and hope. I shall share her photos as well at the beginning so you can get an idea of her journey. Take it away, Nancy. Thank you so much, Rita. Uh, it's such an honor to be here. And for those of you who can see the pictures, the top row is me at 272 pounds. And the bottom row is me uh, today at 167 pounds. And the middle picture at the bottom is my husband, Walter. We've been married 52 years. He has seen me in every size and shape. And uh, his, his joke, which is true, is, um, is that uh, it's being married to me is like being, was be being married to 10 different women because he had me in every size and shape and he's been with me in this long journey. Uh, to give you an example, when we were first married, I got very involved with the Weight Watchers, which I respect highly. And I was trained by them. I had three classes that I taught and my faithful husband babysat for our, we had three children, three little children at that time so that I could go and teach my Weight Watcher classes. And then Eventually I put the weight back on. I quit my job as Weight Watcher instructor. And that started a whole adult life of trying different things. I tried OptiFast and I lost a hundred pounds, put it back on. I joined a health club and my scheme then was to not eat all day. And then at night, go to the health club do the exercises, then come home after that and then eat a very big dinner. And I lost a hundred pounds that way. And that time I ended up in the local newspaper as member of the health club had me as member of the month. And then they had me as member of the year. I had a dozen roses, like I was Miss America. And I was in the newspaper showing me as member of the year and uh, I put all that weight back on. And so of course, this is horribly discouraging. Now I was a nice size as a young girl and as a teenager. This problem all started pretty much around the age of 20. All of a sudden, it's like a switch was flipped in me and uh, I couldn't get enough food in me. Uh, to this day, I really don't know why that happened at that age. I was happily married and I was home with children and whatever my issues were, I was surrounding myself in kind of a cozy nest of food and soap operas. And when I look back, I did have trauma as a child. I lost my mother of cancer when I was nine. My father remarried when I was 11 and my stepmother was mentally and physically ill. She died of cancer when I was a senior in high school. So I had trauma as a child, but 
the compulsive overeating did not kick in until I had my own home. And uh, somehow I decided that it was gonna be a safer home or a more, I don't know what it was subconsciously why I suddenly turned to food and uh, soap operas. And uh, this kept on my whole adult life, trying to lose the weight, regaining it, trying to lose the weight, regaining it. And um, uh, I'm 76 years old now. When I returned to OA the second time, after many, many years, I was almost 70 years old and in terrible health. I had put the weight on plus. Now I was 272 pounds. I was a lawyer and a workaholic lawyer. And uh, I would go to the office, sit there in the only suit that I had that fit me. It was a black suit. I always wore a black suit. And every day I tried to wear a different pin on the collar of my suit. So I would fool people into thinking I had more than one suit, but I really only had one suit because I had to keep changing the size. It had to keep going up and up and up. And I had a big black raincoat and that was kind of my uniform for being able to face the public. And I would, uh, and my job was, I was a corporate lawyer. And so I was dealing with business owners. I had to look nice. So I had the black suit, but I was at probably at the end, it was like a size 26 and size 28. And I would sit at my desk with these, my desk filled with papers. And all of a sudden I'd feel my nose was kind of wet and I would put a tissue up to my nose and there was bright red blood, horrifying, like something you see in a scary movie. And then I'd look down at my desk and there was blood dripping onto, bright red blood dripping onto these white papers on my desk. And this was getting worse. And I was afraid to go to the doctor. This is how we get, at least how I got, a fear of hearing the truth, a fear of hearing what the doctor might say. And every morning when I'd wake up, I would say to myself, today I'm going to have a good day. I'm going to eat right because I knew how to eat to lose weight. I was an expert at it. It wasn't that I didn't know what to eat. I just could not stay away from my binge foods, which in my case were bagels. It, it, was, it was carbs in, I, in volume. I wanted to stuff myself. It wasn't just one piece of rye bread. It was the whole loaf of rye bread with a tub of margarine and six cans of Diet Coke stuffing myself. It could be a whole box of graham crackers. It could be a giant tub of popcorn that you would make for 20 people at a party. I'd eat the whole thing. A giant sleeve of pistachio nuts. It was stuffing myself. And if I ordered pizza from a, an Italian restaurant to deliver two giant pizzas, I'd pretend one was for my husband. The delivery boy didn't care. I'd say, oh, here's the pizza for me and my husband. I'd eat both of them. So I was stuffing myself and stuffing myself. And uh, so this was the condition I was in when I joined OA. And it was in April, the second time I joined OA in April of, uh, it was 2015. 
And I went to a meeting and I was wearing a big black raincoat. And I sat there and I felt terrible. I felt so isolated, so depressed. I couldn't even make eye contact with people. And at the very end of that first meeting, the person ended the meeting by saying, welcome home. And when that person said, welcome home, the tears streamed down my face. It was such a wonderful feeling to feel part of something. And you know, I had the same reaction this morning when my wonderful friend Rita Q said to me, and here is my buddy, Nancy. When she called me her buddy, a tear streamed down my cheek because I can see it's affecting Rita because you know, we're people, we wanna belong. We wanna be part of a family of friends. We're looking for a safe place. What's really in my heart, I'm looking for a safe place where people love me and I can love them. And I'm starting to get myself choked up here, but that's what this is all about. And I think for me, that's what the food was all about, trying to create some kind of nurturing safe place, but it turns on you. The food turns on you. You think it's gonna be a happy, safe place, but it's poison. As it says in the big book over and over again, it will kill us. And I wanna ask Rita, Rita, what time should I end? Just so that, because I know we got a little bit of a later start, what time should I actually end my talk? I'm not actually sure. Is our timer got that, Nilla? You're on mute, Nilla. There's 21 minutes left. 21. So, so I should end like, um, uh, okay, on my watch, 10.50. Okay. And uh, so joining in April of 2015, that first night hearing Welcome Home, it deeply affected me. And I immediately got a sponsor. I knew from my prior experience with OA many, many years before, before I went to law school. I knew having a sponsor was key. And I looked for someone at that meeting who, uh, who would uh, be a good sponsor. And I found somebody and I asked her to sponsor me. And she used the OA Big Book, which was actually fine. It was a work, I'm sorry, not the big book, a workbook. She used the OA workbook, which referred to other OA books. And uh, she and I worked on that OA workbook. And what I would do, and people often ask me, Nancy, what was your program when you lost all this weight? What did it look like? And so I'm gonna get into that a little bit now. At that time, I was working full-time as a lawyer. Now, now I'm pretty much part-time, but at that time I was full-time. And so I would get up in the morning, I would go to work, I'd go to the office and uh, I'd work very hard until about four o'clock. I would leave work early, which for me, four o'clock was really early. And I would go out and I would go to a restaurant 
And this particular restaurant, you could get a meal, a half a sandwich and a half a salad, an apple and a cup of coffee. And to me, that was a tiny meal. I actually thought to myself, do people really exist on this? This is like what a hummingbird would eat. Uh, half a, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a half a sandwich and a half a salad, but that's what I did. And then I would go to a meeting. Every single night I'd go to a meeting. But uh, while I was eating my dinner, I'd work on my OA workbook. And I worked very hard to go through that quickly. And the person who sponsored me said she never saw anybody go through the 12 steps as quickly as I did. I, I was so anxious to recover. And what I would do every night when I got home from my meeting, and it would be somewhere in the Chicago area, which is where I live, I'd get home and it would be about 10 o'clock at night. And keep in mind, I had gotten up early in the morning uh, to go to work. I'd be starving. I'd ready to eat the furniture in the house, but I didn't want to in any way break my abstinence. So I would jump into bed with my phone and I would Google OA speakers, Overeaters Anonymous speakers. And uh, I found people that of course I didn't know, wonderful, wonderful podcasts. And I would lay in bed and I would not get out of bed because I knew if I did, I might end up eating. I didn't want to do that. And so I went through the 12 steps that way, going, going to a meeting every night, working in the OA workbook with this sponsor and, um, uh, and listening to podcasts. Sometimes I'd listen to three, four hours of podcasts before I fell asleep. I found incredible people in this way. And what I did also, because I was able to do this, I would fly to certain locations. I'd found some of these uh, people on podcasts and I would contact them and find out some of them were doing workshops in different parts of the United States. I went to weekend workshops on the big book and I would sit all, I would go all by myself. I would fly all by myself, strange town, strange hotel. I didn't know anybody. And I'd sit in the audience and I would have the big book on my lap and I would listen and I would really try to absorb what was in that big book. But you see, I was so deeply involved and I put so much time in and energy in, it replaced, I believe in many ways, the obsession with food because you do need something to replace it. You know, food is our life. And once we become abstinent, well, we have to have other things to replace that. And that's where this fellowship is so amazing. As a matter of fact, I want to point out um, on page 152 in the big book, there's a wonderful uh, paragraph that I love because you know, we need something to substitute for our addictive behaviors, our addictive substance. We want it to be something that's healthy, that, that gives us a better life. We don't wanna go into another addiction that's gonna be destructive and hurt us. We wanna go into something to fill our life with things that bring us joy and bring us health and recovery and happiness. 
page 152 in the big book answers that question. It says, I know I must get along without, and I'm gonna substitute the word, my binge foods, my binge behaviors, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? Yes, there is a substitute and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Overeaters Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship and so will you. Now I find that at age 76, where my career has pretty much wound down. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, I love them, but they're not right here in the house with me. They are living their lives. And by the way, I have three children, seven grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. I've been very blessed. But my life at age 76, what, is the, what does the future hold for me? And due to this program, it holds so much. It's such a joy. It's, it's so wonderful to think of what it does hold. On page 25 in the big book, it says, we have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And I wanna sneak in that I was an atheist when I came into this program. I still may be in my head, but in my heart, I have a loving God who looks out for me and guides me whenever I ask for guidance. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. And so to me at age 76, this is beautiful. The other thing about me sliding into retirement after being a workaholic for 32 years in the legal profession is pages 62 and 63 of the big book, which tells us God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. It tells me on page 63, I have a new employer. So even though uh, it may not be an employer in the legal profession, it's an employer in my life, in the way I conduct my life. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. And this is something that I want to be sure to mention. 
Uh, the deeper I get into this program, the more I see that this is a program that our whole attitude changes and it's supposed to be one of altruism, that my thought should be of helping somebody else. And I'll give you an example. When I was waiting for Rita to introduce me, I started to get self-centered fear. I wonder how many people are on this line. I wonder if they're gonna like what I say. I wonder if they're gonna like me. And I wonder if I'll be good enough. And all those performance anxiety feelings. And I recognized right away, that's not a good place for my brain to be, for my heart to be, for my soul to be. And all of a sudden, a picture of one of you, and I don't know who you are, many of you, flashed up on my phone. And I thought to myself, God, let me say something today to help that particular person. And I even made a quick sketch on my notes of what that person looked like, so that my thinking would be to help somebody. That's the way I want to be geared, not towards what I can get, but what I can give, because we are in a program of altruism. When we look at how we're supposed to live, which is essentially pages 84 to 88 in the big book, it stresses over and over again that we are living in order to help others, to do God's will and to help our fellow man. It says on page 87 about the, uh, the meditation that we do each morning, that what they're suggesting we do meditation each morning with a prayer. Well, what is that prayer that suggested? That we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. So everything we do, all the prayers in the book are geared towards helping others. By doing that, we, uh, we aren't into ourselves and all that anxiety and that loneliness and that fear that comes from focusing on ourselves, that's out the window and it's transformed through the help of this spiritual program to where we have a purpose. We have a purpose in our life. And as a matter of fact, I wanna read to you um, uh, what our purpose is. And I'm just gonna find that page here. Let me see. that the real purpose of our existence is to serve God and help our fellow man. Looking for that exact wording and that page seems to have slipped out. I, I only have a few uh, more minutes and uh, there's some things I wanna share with you uh, before, before, my, before my time is up. What I want to read to you is um, something that I think is very special. This is a plaque that was on, that is on Dr. Bob's desk at his home in Akron, Ohio. And it's beautiful because it tells us about the attitude that we can have through recovery. And the Dr. Bob loved this so much that he put it on his desk as a plaque. And I'm gonna read it to you, it's very short. 
humility. Humility is perpetual quietness of the heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed, irritable or sore. To wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in myself where I can go in and shut the door and pray to my father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and about is seeming trouble. The other thing I wanna to read to you is something that it was a kind of a spiritual experience that I had. I have a park across the street from my house and I try to go there every day and there's beautiful as a river and beautiful birds, herons and cranes and beautiful flowers. And you can walk through the park. And I never used to walk in that park when I was 272 pounds. I was only interested in coming home, throwing on a pair of pajamas and eating as much food as I could possibly stuff in myself. Now at 167 pounds for the past six years, I've been maintaining for about six years now. I go into that park and I walk through the park and I listen to music. And one day recently, I was listening to a song by Carol King. And when I heard this song and I was in the park, I thought to myself, this is a spiritual song. And that's the reaction I have a lot of times to a lot of things in my life that suddenly I hear a message, I hear a spiritual message. And this again is someone who was pretty much of an atheist, even to today in my head, an atheist, but in my heart, I've got a tremendous connection with some kind of power that's love and kindness looks out for me and gives me guidance when I ask. This, this is the words of the song and they were so spiritual to me and I wanna read them to you. Some of you may remember Carol King, if you're my age. Uh, and even if you're not my age, I think she's made kind of a, a resurgence of popularity, but I'm gonna read you these lyrics and see if you, if you feel what I felt when I heard these words, standing in the park with nature all around me. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care, and nothing, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. You just call out my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there. You've got a friend. If the sky above you grows dark and full of clouds and that old north wind begins to blow, keep your head together and call my name out loud. Soon you'll hear me knocking at your door. You just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running, running, yeah, to see you again. Winter, spring, summer or fall, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. Yes, I will. And with that, I pass. Thank you.
Nancy, thank you so much um, for the record or for the talk. That was wonderful. Sorry, you got me all choked up. <laughs>